Section 7 of The Golden Bough by James Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. The Golden Bough, Part 1. The Magic Art and the Evolution of Kings, Volume 1. Chapter 3, Subchapter 3, Contagious Magic. 3. Contagious Magic. Contagious Magic, Working by Contact, not resemblance. Thus far, we have been considering chiefly that branch of sympathetic magic which may be called homeopathic or imitative. Its leading principle, as we have seen, is that like produces like, or in other words, that an effect resembles its cause. The other great branch of sympathetic magic, which I have called contagious magic, proceeds upon the notion that things which have once been conjoined must remain ever afterwards, even when quite disappeared from each other in such a sympathetic relation that whatever is done to the one must similarly affect the other. Thus the logical basis of contagious magic, like that of homeopathic magic, is a mistaken association of ideas. Its physical basis, if we may speak of such a thing, like the physical basis of homeopathic magic, is a material medium of some sort, which, like the ether of modern physics, is assumed to unite distant objects and may convey impressions from one to the other. Magical sympathy between a man and the severed portions of his person, such as his hair or nails. The most familiar example of contagious magic is a magical sympathy which is supposed to exist between a man and any severed portion of his person, as his hair or nails, so that whoever gets possession of human hair or nails may work his will at any distance upon the person from whom they were cut. This superstition is worldwide. Instances of it in regard to hair and nails will be noticed later on in this work beneficial effect of this superstition in causing the removal of refuse. While like other superstitions, it has had its absurd and mischievous consequences, it has nevertheless indirectly done much good by furnishing savages with strong, though irrational motives for observing rules of cleanliness which they might never have adopted on rational grounds. How the superstition has produced this salutary effect will appear from a single instance, which I will give in the words of an experienced observer. Amongst the natives of the Gazelle Peninsula in New Britain, it is, as a rule, necessary for the efficiency of a charm that it should contain a part of the person who is to be enchanted, for example his hair, or a piece of his clothing, or something that stands in some relation to him, such as his excrements, the refuse of his food, his spittle, his footprints, etc. All such objects can be employed as penant, that is, as a medium for a papate or charm, consisting of an incantation or murmuring of a certain formula, together with the blowing into the air of some burnt lime, which is held in the hand. It need hardly therefore be said that the native removes all such objects as well as he can, thus the cleanliness which is usual in his houses and consists in sweeping the floor carefully every day is by no means based on a desire for cleanliness and neatness in themselves, but purely on the effort to put out of the way anything that might serve an ill-wisher as a charm. I will now illustrate the principles of contagious magic by examples beginning with its application to various parts of the human body. Contagious Magic of the Teeth in Australia Among the Australian tribes, it was a common practice to knock out one or more of a boy's front teeth at those ceremonies of initiation to which every male member had to submit before he could enjoy the rights and privileges of a full-grown man. The reason of this practice is obscure. A conjecture on this subject has been hazard above. All that concerns us here is the evidence of a belief that a sympathetic relation continued to exist between the lad and his teeth after the latter had been extracted from his gums. 
Thus agreed some of the tribes about the River Darling in New South Wales. The extracted tooth was placed under the bark of a tree near a river or waterhole. If the bark grew over the tooth, or if the tooth fell into the water, all was well. But if it were exposed and the ants ran over it, the natives believed that the boy would suffer from a disease of the mouth. Among the Maring and other tribes in New South Wales, the extracted tooth was at first taken care of by an old man, and then passed from one headman to another, until it had gone all round the community, when it came back to the lad's father, and finally to the lad himself, but however it was thus conveyed from hand to hand, it might on no account be placed in a bag containing magical substances, for to do so would, they believed, put the owner of the tooth in great danger. The late Dr. Howitt once acted as custodian of the teeth, which had been extracted from some novices at a ceremony of initiation, and the old men earnestly besought him not to carry them in a bag in which they knew that he had some quartz crystals. They declared that if he did so, the magic of the crystals would pass into the teeth and so injure the boys. Nearly a year after Dr. Howitt's return from the ceremony, he was visited by one of the principal men of the Murray tribe who had travelled some 250 miles from his home to fetch back the teeth. The man explained that he had been sent for them because one of the boys had fallen into ill health and it was believed that the teeth had received some injury which had affected him. He was assured that the teeth had been kept in a box apart from any substances like quartz crystals which could influence them and he returned home bearing the teeth with him carefully wrapped up and concealed. In the dairy tribe of South Australia, the teeth knocked out at initiation were brought up in emu feathers and kept by the boy's father or his next of kin until the mouth had healed, and even for long afterwards, then the father accompanied by a few old men performed a ceremony for the purpose of taking all the supposed life out of the teeth. He made a low rumbling noise without uttering any words, blew two or three times with his mouth, and jerked the tooth through his hand to some little distance. After that he buried them about eighteen inches underground. The joking movement was meant to show that he thereby took all the life out of the teeth. Had he failed to do so, the boy would, in the opinion of the natives, have been liable to an ulcerated and wry mouth, impediment in speech, and ultimately a distorted face. The ceremony is interesting as a rare instance of an attempt to break the sympathetic link between a man and a separate part of himself by rendering the part insensitive. Contagious Magic of Teeth in Africa, Europe, America, etc. The Basutos are careful to conceal their extracted teeth, lest they should fall into the hands of certain mythical beings called Baloi, who haunt graves and could harm the owner of the tooth by working magic on it. In Sussex, some forty years ago, a maid servant remonstrated strongly against the throwing away of children's cast teeth, affirming that should they be found ignored by any animal, the child's new tooth would be, for all the world, like the teeth of the animal that had bitten the old one. In proof of this, she named old Master Simmons, who had a very large pig's tooth in his upper jaw, a personal defect that he always averred was caused by his mother who threw away one of his cast teeth by accident into the hog's trough. A similar belief has led to practices intended on the principles of homeopathic magic to replace old teeth by new and better ones. Teeth of Mice and Rats Thus in many parts of the world it is customary to put extracted teeth in some place where they will be found by a mouse or a rat in the hope that, though the sympathy which continues to subsist between them and their former owner, his other teeth may acquire the same firmness and excellence as the teeth of these rodents. Thus in Germany, it is said to be an almost universal maximum among the people that when you have had a tooth taken out, you should insert it in a mouse's hole. To do so with the child's milk tooth, which has fallen out, will prevent the child from having toothache 
or you should go behind the stove and throw your tooth backwards over your head, saying, Mouse, give me your iron tooth. I will give you my bone tooth. After that, your other teeth will remain good. German children say, Mouse, mouse, come out and bring me a new tooth. Or, Mouse, I give you a little bone, give me a little stone. Or, Mouse, there is an old tooth for you, make me a new one. In Bavaria, they say that if this ceremony be observed, the child's second teeth will be as white as the teeth of mice. Amongst the South Slavonians, too, the child is taught to throw his tooth into a dark corner and say, Mouse, mouse, there is a bone tooth, give me an iron tooth instead. Jewish children in South Russia throw their cast teeth on the roof with the same request to the mouse to give them an iron tooth or a tooth of bone. Far away from Europe, at Raratonga in the Pacific, when a child's tooth was extracted, the following prayer used to be recited. Big rat, little rat, here is my old tooth. Pray give me a new one. Then the tooth was thrown on the thatch of the house, because rats made their nests in the decayed thatch. The reason assigned for invoking the rats on these occasions was that that rats' teeth were the strongest known to the natives. In the Seranglo and Gorong archipelagos between New Guinea and Salibes, when a child loses his first tooth, he must throw it on the roof, saying, Now so give you my tooth, give me yours instead. In Ambonya, the custom is the same, and the form of words is, Take this tooth thrown on the roof as the mouse's share, and give me a better one instead. In the K Islands, in the southwest of New Guinea, when a child begins to get his second teeth, he is lifted up to the top of the roof in order that he may there deposit, as an offering to the rats, the tooth which has fallen out. At the same time, someone cries loud, O oh, rats, here you have his tooth. Give him a golden one instead. Among the Ilocans of Luzon in the Philippines, when children's teeth are loose, they are pulled out with a string and put in a place where rats will be likely to find and drag them away. In ancient Mexico, when a child was getting his new tooth, the father or mother used to put the old one in a mouse's hole, believing that if this precaution were not taken, the new tooth would not issue from the gums. A different and more barbarous application of the same principle is the Swabian superstition that when a child is teething, you should bite off the head of the living mouse and hang the head round the child's neck by a string, taking care, however, to make no knot in the string. Then the child will teeth easily. In Bohemia, the treatment prescribed is similar, though there they recommend that you use a red thread and to string three heads of mice on it instead of one. Contagious magic of teeth teeth of squirrels, foxes, beavers, etc. But it's not always a mouse or a rat that brings a child a new and stronger tooth. Apparently, any strong-toothed animal will serve the purpose. Thus, when his or her tooth drops out, a Singalese will throw it on the roof, saying, Squirrel, dear squirrel, take this tooth and give me a dainty tooth. In Bohemia, a child will sometimes throw its cast tooth behind the stove, asking the fox to give him an iron tooth instead of the bone one. In Berlin, the teeth of a fox worn as an amulet round a child's neck make teething easy for him and ensure that his teeth will be good and lasting. Similarly, in order to help a child to cut its teeth, the Aborigines of Victoria fastened to its wrist the front tooth of a kangaroo, which the child used as a coral to rub its gums with. Again, the beaver can gnaw through the hardest wood. Hence, among the Cherokee Indians, when the loosened milk tooth of a child has been pulled out or has dropped out of itself. The child runs round the house with it, repeating four times, Beaver put a new tooth into my jaw, at which he throws a tooth on the roof of the house. In Macedonia, a child carefully keeps for a time its first drawn tooth, 
and then throws it on the roof with the following invocation to the crow. Oh dear crow, here is a tooth of bone. Take it and give me a tooth of iron instead, that I may be able to chew beans and to crunch dry biscuits. We can now understand a custom of the Thompson Indians of British Columbia, which the writer who records it is unable to explain. When a child lost its teeth, the father used to take each one out as it fell out, and to hide it in a piece of raw Venetian, which he gave to a dog to eat. The animal swallowed the Venetian and the tooth with it. Doubtless the custom was intended to ensure that the child's new teeth should be as strong as those of a dog. In Silesia, mothers sometimes swallow their children's cast teeth in order to save their offspring from toothache. The intention is perhaps to strengthen the weak teeth of the child by the strong teeth of the grown woman. Among the Warramunga of Central Australia, when a girl's tooth has been knocked out as a solemn ceremony, it is pounded up and the fragments placed in a piece of flesh which has to be eaten by the girl's mother. When the same rite has been performed on a man, his pounded tooth must be eaten in a piece of meat by his mother-in-law. Teeth thrown towards the sun. Among the heathen Arabs, when a boy's tooth fell out, he used to take it between his finger and thumb and throw it towards the sun, saying, Give me a better for it. After that, his teeth were sure to grow straight and close and strong. The son, says Tharafah, gave the lad from his own nursery ground a tooth like a hailstone, white and polished. Thus, the reason for throwing the old teeth towards the sun would seem to have been a notion that the sun sends hail, from which it naturally follows that he can send you a tooth as smooth and white and hard as a hailstone. Among the peasants of the Lebanon, when a child loses a milk tooth, he throws it towards the sun, saying, Son, son, take the ass's tooth, and give me a deer's tooth. They sometimes say, jestingly, that the child's tooth has been carried off by a moose. An Armenian generally buries his extracted teeth at the edge of the hearth with the prayer, Grandfather, take a dog's tooth, and give me a golden tooth. In the light of the preceding examples, we may conjecture that the grandfather here invoked is not so much the soul of a dead ancestor as a mouse or a rat. Contagious magic of naval string and afterbirth among the Maoris and the Aborigines of Australia. Other parts which are commonly believed to remain in a sympathetic union with the body after the physical connection has been severed are the navel string and the afterbirth, including the placenta. So intimate, indeed, is the union conceived to be that the fortunes of the individual for good or evil throughout life are often supposed to be bound up with one or other of these portions of his person, so that, if his navel string or afterbirth is preserved and properly treated, he will be prosperous, whereas, if it be injured or lost, he will suffer accordingly. Thus among the Maoris, when the navel string is dropped off, the child was carried to a priest to be solemnly named by him. But before the ceremony of naming began, the navel string was buried in a sacred place, and a young sapling was planted over it. Ever afterwards, that tree grew. As it grew, was a tahu or unga, or sign of life for the child. In the upper Wakanatane Valley, in the North Island of New Zealand, there is a famous hinawa tree to which the Maoris used to attach the navel strings of their children, and barren women were in the habit of embracing the tree in the hope of thereby obtaining offspring. Again among the Maoris, the placenta is named Finau, which word signifies land. It is applied by the natives to the placenta, for their supposing it to be the residence of the child. On being discharged, it is immediately buried with great care, as they have the superstitious idea that the priests, if offended, would procure it, and by praying over it, occasion the death of both mother and child, by praying them to death, to use their own expression. 
Again, some of the natives of South Australia regarded the placenta as sacred and carefully put it away out of reach of the dogs, doubtless because they thought that harm would come to the child if this part of himself were eaten by the animals. Certain tribes of Western Australia believe that a man swims well or ill, according as his mother at his birth threw the navel string into water or not. Among the Arunta of Central Australia, the navel string is swathed in fur string and made into a necklace, which is placed round the child's neck. The necklace is supposed to facilitate the growth of the child, to keep it quiet and contented, and to avert illness generally. In the Katish tribe of Central Australia, the practice and belief are similar. In the Waramunga tribe, after the string has hung round the child's neck for a time, it is given to the wife's brother, who wears it in his armlet, and who may not see the child till it can walk. In return for the navel string, the man makes a present of weapons to the infant's father. When the child can walk, the father gives first string to the man, who now comes to the camp, sees the child, and makes another present to the father. After that, he keeps the navel string for some time longer, and finally places it in a hollow tree known only to himself. Among the natives on the Benifather River in Queensland, it is believed that a part of the child's spirit, Kui, stays in the afterbirth. Hence the grandmother takes the afterbirth away and buries it in the sand. She marks a spot by a number of twigs, which he sticks in the ground in a circle, trying their tops together so that the structure resembles a cone. When Angia, the being who causes conception in women by putting mud babies into their wombs, comes along and sees the place, he takes out the spirit and carries it away to one of his haunts, such as a tree, a hole in a rock, or a lagoon, where it may remain for years, but some time or other he will put the spirit again into a baby, and it will be born once more into the world. Contagious Magic of Naval String in New Guinea, Fiji, the Caroline Islands, and the Gilbert Islands. In the Abim tribe of German New Guinea, the mother ties the naval string to the net in which she carries a child, lest anyone should use the string to the child's hurt. In some parts of Fiji, the navel string of a male infant is planted together with a coconut or slip of a breadfruit tree, and the child's life is supposed to be intimately connected with that of the tree. Moreover, the planting is supposed to have the effect of making the boy a good climber. If the child be a girl, the mother or her sister will take the navel string to the sea water when she goes out fishing for the first time after the childbirth, and she will throw it into the sea when the nets are stretched in line. Thus the girl will grow up into a skilful fisherwoman. By the queerest use I ever saw the string put to was at Rotama. There it has become almost obligatory for a young man who wants the girls to respect him to make a voyage in a white man's vessel and mothers come alongside ships anchored in the roadstead and fasten their boy's navel string to the vessel's chain plates. This will make sure of a voyage for the child when it has grown up. This, of course, must be a modern development, but it has all the strength of an ancient custom. In Poneg, one of the Caroline Islands, the navel string is placed in a shell and then disposed of in such a way as shall best adapt the child for the career which the parents have chosen for him. Thus, if they wish to make him a good climber, they will hang the navel string on a tree. In the Gilbert Islands, the navel string is wrapped by the child's father or adoptive father in a pandanus leaf, and then worn by him as a bracelet for several months. After that, he keeps it most carefully in the hut, generally hanging under the ridge beam. The islanders believe that if the navel string is thus preserved, the child will become a great warrior, if it is a boy, or will make a good match if it is a girl. But should the bracelet be lost before the child has grown up, 
they expect that the boy will prove a coward in war, and that the girl will make an unfortunate marriage. Hence, the most anxious search is made for the missing talisman, and if it is not found, weeks will pass before the relations resign themselves to its loss. When the boy has grown to be a youth and has distinguished himself for the first time in war, the bracelet containing the naval string is taken by the villagers on a day fixed for the purpose, far out to sea. The adoptive father of the lad throws the bracelet overboard, and all the canoes begin to catch as many fish as they can. The first fish caught, whether large or small, is carefully preserved apart from the rest. Meantime, the old women at home have been busy preparing a copious banquet for the fishermen. When the little fleet comes to shore, the old woman who helps at the lad's birth goes to meet it. The first fish caught is handed to her, and she carries it to the hut. The fish is laid on a new mat. The youth and his mother take their places beside it, and they and it are covered up with another mat. Then the old woman goes round the mat, striking the ground with a short club, and murmuring a prayer to the lad's god to help him henceforth in war, that he may be brave and vulnerable, and that he may turn out a skilful fisherman. The naval string of a girl, as soon as she is grown up, is thrown into the sea with similar ceremonies, and the ceremony on land is the same except that the old woman's prayer is naturally different. She asks the girl's god to grant that she may have a happy marriage and many children. After the mat has been removed, the fish is cooked and eaten by the two. If it is too large to be eaten by them alone, the remainder is consumed by friends and relations. These ceremonies are only reserved for the children of wealthy parents, who can defray the cost. In the case of a child of poorer parents, the bracelet contains the naval string slipping hangs till it disappears in one way or another. Contagious Magic of Naval String and Afterbirth in the Moluccas Among the galleries to the west of New Guinea, the mother sometimes keeps the naval string till the child is old enough to begin to play. Then she gives it as a plaything to the little one who may take it away, otherwise the child would be idiotic. But others plant the naval string with a banana bush or a coconut. The Kay Islanders, to the southwest New Guinea, regard the naval string as the brother or sister of the child, according as the infant is a boy or a girl. They put it in a pot with ashes and set it in the branches of a tree, that it may keep a watchful eye on the fortunes of its comrade. In the Baybar Archipelago, between New Guinea and Salibes, the placenta is mixed with ashes and put in a small basket, which seven women, each of them armed with a sword, hang up on a tree of a particular kind, Citrus Hystrix. The women carry swords for the purpose of frightening the evil spirits, otherwise these mischievous beings might get hold of the placenta and make the child sick. The naval string is kept in a little box in the house. In the Tenimbur and Timorlot Islands, the placenta is buried in a basket under a sago or coconut palm, which then becomes the property of the child. But sometimes it is hidden in the forest, or deposited in a hole under the house with an offering of betel. In the Watubela Islands, the placenta is buried under a coconut, manga, or great fig tree, along the shell of the coconut, of which the pulp had been used to smear the newborn child. In many of the islands between New Guinea and Salives, the placenta is put in the branches of a tree, often the top of one of the highest trees in the neighbourhood. Sometimes the navel string is deposited along with the placenta in the tree, but often it is kept to be used as medicine or an amulet by the child. Thus in Karem, the child sometimes wears the navel string round its neck as a charm to avert sickness, and in the islands of Leti, Moa, and Lacor, he carries it as an amulet, in war, or on a far journey. We cannot doubt that the intention of putting the placenta in the top of a tall tree is to keep it, and with it to the child, out of harm's way. In the islands of Saporia, Heroikio, and Noisa Loat, to the east of Amboina, the midwife buries the afterbirth 
and strews flowers over it. Moreover, resin or lamp is kept burning for seven or three nights over the buried afterbirth, in order that no harm may come to the child. Some people, however, in these islands solemnly cast the afterbirth into the sea, being placed in a pot and closely covered up with a piece of white cotton, it is taken out to sea in a boat. A hole is knocked in the pot to allow it to sink in the water. The midwife, who is charged with the duty of heaving the pot and its contents overboard, must look straight ahead. If she were to glance to the right or left, the child whose afterbirth is in the pot would squint, and the man who rows or steers the boat must make her keep a straight course, otherwise the child would grow up a gadabout. Before the pot is flung into the sea, the midwife disengages the piece of white cotton in which it is wrapped, and this cloth she takes straight back to the house and covers the baby with it. In these islands, it is thought that a child born with a core will enjoy in later years the gift of second sight. That is, that he will be able to see things which are hidden from common eyes, such as devils and evil spirits. But if his parents desire to prevent him from exercising this uncanny power, they can do so. In that case, the midwife must dry the core in the sun, steep it in water, and then wash the child with the water thrice. Further, when the child is a little older, she must grind the core to power and give the child the powder to eat with its pap. Some people keep the core, and if the child falls ill, it is given water to drink in which the core has been steeped. Similarly, in the Long Sumata Islands, a child born with a core is counted lucky and can perceive and recognize the spirits of his ancestors. A core, it may be said, is merely the fetal membrane which usually forms part of the afterbirth. Occasionally a child is born with it wrapped like a hood round its head. Contagious Magic of the Placenta in Salibes In Parigi, a kingdom on the coast of central Salibes, the placenta is laid in a cooking pot, and one of the mother's female relations carries the pot wrapped in white cotton and hidden under a petticoat, sarong, to a spot beneath the house or elsewhere, and there she buries it. A coconut is planted near the place. Going and coming, the woman is led by another and must keep her eyes far shut, for if she looks right or left, the child would squint, because she is, at this time, closely united with a part of the child to which his older brother, in other words, the placenta. On her return to the house, she lies down on her sleeping mat, still with closed eyes, and draws a petticoat over her head, and another woman sprinkles her with water. After that, she may get up and open her eyes. The sprinkling with water is intended to sever her sympathetic connection with the child, and so prevent her from exercising any influence on it. Among the talalaki of central salibs, turmeric and other spices are put on the placenta, which is then enclosed in two coconut shells that fit one on the other. These are wrapped in bark cloth and kept in the house. If the child falls ill, the coconut shells are opened and the placenta examined. Should there be worms in it, they are removed and fresh spices added. When the child has grown big and strong, the placenta is thrown away. Among the tobunko of central salibs, the afterbirth is placed in a rice pot with various plants which are intended to preserve it from decay as long as possible. It is then carefully tied up in bark cloth. A man and a woman of the family carry the placenta away. In doing so, they go out in the house four times. Each time they enter, they kiss the child, but they take care not to look to the right or the left, or otherwise the child would squint. Some bury the placenta, others hang it on a tree. If the child is unwell, they dig up the placenta and take it down from the tree and lay bananas, rice of four sorts, and a lighted taper beside it. Having done so, they hang it up on a tree if it was previously buried, but they bury it if it was formerly hung up. The tamori of central leaves wash the afterbirth, 
put it in a rice pot, and bury it under the house. Great care is taken that no water or spittle falls on the place. For a few days the artiburf is sometimes fed with rice and eggs, which are laid on the spot where it is buried. Artwards the people cease to trouble themselves about it. In southern Salibs they call the navel string and artiburf the two brothers or sisters of the child. When the infant happens to be a prince or princess, the navel string and artiburf are placed with salt and tamarind in a new rice pot, which is then enveloped in a fine robe and tightly corded up to prevent the evil spirits from making off with a pair of brothers or sisters. For the same reason, a light is kept burning all night, and twice a day rice is rubbed on the edge of the pot for the purpose, as the people say, of giving the child's little brothers or sisters something to eat. After a while, this feeding, as it is called, takes place at rare intervals, and when the mother has been again brought to bed, it is discontinued altogether. On the ninth day after the birth, a number of coconuts are planted with much ceremony in a square enclosure, and the water which was used in cleansing the afterbirth and navel string is poured upon them. These coconuts are called the contemporaries of the child and grew up with him. When the planting is done, the rice pot with the navel string and afterbirth is carried back and set beside the bed of the young prince or princess, and when his royal highness is carried out to take the air at the rice pot with his two brothers, goes out with him, swathed in a robe of state and screened from the sun by an umbrella. If the prince or princess should die, the afterbirth and navel string are buried. Among common people in South Salibs, these parts of the infant are generally buried immediately after the birth, or they are sunk in the deep sea or hung in a rice pot on a tree. Contagious Magic of the Placenta and Navel String in Timor, Savu and Roti In the island of Timor, the placenta is called the child's companion and treated accordingly. The midwife puts it in earth and covers it with ashes from the earth. After standing thus three days, it is taken away and buried by a person who must observe silence in discharging this duty. In Savo, a small island to the southwest of Timor, the afterbirth is filled with native herbs and having been deposited in a new pot, which has never before been used, it is buried under the house to keep off evil spirits. Or it is put in a new basket and hung in a high toddy palm to fertilize it or thrown into the sea to secure a good catch of fish. The person who thus disposes of the afterbirth may not look to the right or to the left. He must be joyous, and if possible, go singing on his way. If it is to be hung on a tree, he must climb nimbly up, in order that the child may always be lucky. These islanders ascribe a similar fertilizing virtue to a core. It is dried and carefully kept in a box. When rice stalks turn black and the ears refuse to set, a man will take the box containing the core and run several times round the rice field in order that the wind may waft the general influence of the call over the rice. In Roti, an island to the south of Timor, the navel string is put in a small satchel made of leaves, and if the father of the child is not himself going on a voyage, he entrusts the bag to one of his seafaring friends and charges him to throw it away in the open sea with the express wish that when the child grows up and has to sail to other islands, he may escape the perils of the deep. But the business of girls in these islands does not lie in the great waters, and hence their navel strings receive a different treatment. It is their task to go a-fishing daily when the tide is out, on the coral reefs which ring the islands. So when the mother is herself again, she repairs with the little satchel to the reef where she is wont to fish. Acting the part of the priestess, she there eats one or two small bagfuls of boiled rice on the spot where she intends to deposit the dried navel string of her baby daughter taking care to leave a few grains of rice in the bags. Then she ties the precious satchel and the nearly empty rice bags to a stick 
and fastens it among the stones of the reef, generally, or its outer edge, within sight and sound of the breaking waves. In doing so, she utters a wish that this ceremony may guard her daughter from the perils and dangers that beset her on the reef. For example, that no crocodile may issue from the lagoon and eat her up, and that the sharp claws and broken shells may not wound her feet. Contagious Magic of the Placenta in Flores, Bali, and Java In the island of Flores, the placenta is put in an earthen pot, along with some rice and betel, and buried by the father in the neighbourhood of the house, or else preserved in one of the highest trees. The natives of Bali, an island to the east of Java, believe firmly that the afterbirth is the child's brother or sister, and they bury it in the courtyard in the half of coconut from which the kernel has not been removed. For forty days afterwards, a light is buried, and food, water, and bedal deposited on the spot, doubtless in order to feed the baby's little brother or sister, and to guard him or her from evil spirits. In Java, the afterbirth is also called the brother or sister of the infant. It is wrapped in white cotton, put in a new pot or a coconut shell, and buried by the father beside the door, outside the house if the child is a boy, but inside the house if the child is a girl. Every evening until the child's navel has healed, a lamp is lit over the spot where the afterbirth is buried. If the afterbirth hangs in a rice pot in the house, as the practice is with some people, the lamp burns under the place where the rice pot is suspended. The purpose of the light is to ward off demons, to whose machinations the child and supposed brother or sister are at this season especially exposed. If the child is a boy, a piece of paper inscribed with the alphabet is deposited in the pot with his placenta in order that he may be smart at his learning. If the child is a girl, a needle and thread are deposited in the pot, that she may be a good seamstress, and water with flowers in it is poured on the spot where the placenta is buried, in order that the child may always be healthy. For many Javanese think that if the placenta is not properly honoured, the child will never be well. Sometimes, however, women in the interior of Java allow the placenta, surrounded with fruits and flowers and illuminated by little lamps, to float down the river in the dusk of the evening as an offering to the crocodiles, or rather to the ancestors whose souls are believed to lodge in these animals. Contagious Magic of Placenta and Naval String in Sumatra In Mandaling, a district on the west coast of Sumatra, the afterbirth is washed and placed under the house or put in an earthenware pot, which is carefully shut up and thrown into the river. This is done to avert the supposed unfavorable influence of the afterbirth on the child, whose hands or feet, for example, might be chilled by it. When the navel string drops off, it is preserved to be used as a medicine when its former owner is ill. In mandolin, too, the midwife prefers to cut the navel string with a piece of flute on which she has first blown, for then the child will be sure to have a fine voice. Among the Minang Kabao, people of Sumatra, the placenta is put in a new earthenware pot which is then carefully closed with a banana leaf to prevent the ants and other insects from coming at it. For if they did, the child would be sickly and given to squalling. In central Sumatra, the placenta is wrapped in white cotton, deposited in a basket or a calabash, and buried in the courtyard before the house or under a rice barn. The hole is dug by a kinsman or kinswoman, according as the baby is a boy or a girl. Over the hole is placed a stone from the hearth, and beside it a wooden spoon is stuck in the ground. Both stone and spoon are sprinkled with the juice of a citron. During the ceremony, Kuemajin is burned and a shot fired. For three evenings afterwards, candles are lighted on the spot, doubtless to keep off demons. Among the Batas of Sumatra, as among so many other peoples of the Indian archipelago, the placenta passes for the child's younger brother or sister, the sex being determined by the sex of the child, and it is buried under the house. 
According to the Batas, it is bound up with the child's welfare, and seems, in fact, to be the seat of the transferable soul, of whose wanderings outside of the body we shall hear something later on. The Carobatas even affirm that of a man's two souls it is a true soul that lives with the placenta under the house. That is a soul, they say, which begets children. Contagious magic of placenta and navel string in Borneo, India, and Assam. In Passier, a district of eastern Borneo, the afterbirth is carefully treated and kept in an earthen pot or basket in the house until the remains of the navel string have fallen off. All the time it is in the house, candles are burned and a little food is placed beside the pot. When the navel string has fallen off, it is placed with the placenta in the pot and the two are buried in the ground in the house. The reason why the people take this care of the afterbirth is that they believe it able to cause a child all kinds of sickness and mishaps. The Malas, a low Telugu caste of southern India, bury the placenta in a pot with leaves in some convenient place, generally in the backyard, lest dogs or other animals should carry it off. For if that were to happen, they fancy that the child would be of a wandering disposition. The castes of Assam keep the placenta in a pot in the house until the child has been formally named. When the ceremony is over, the father waves a pot containing the placenta thrice over the child's head, and he hangs it to a tree outside the village. Contagious magic of placenta and navel string in the Batani states, China and Japan. In some Malayo-Siamese families of the Batani states, it is customary to bury the afterbirth under a banana tree, the condition of which is thenceforth regarded as ominous of the child's fate for good or ill. A Chinese medical work prescribes that the placenta should be stored away in a felicitous spot under the salutary influences of the sky of the moon, deep in the ground, and with earth piled up over it carefully, in order that the child may be ensured a long life. If it is devoured by a swine or dog, the child loses its intellect. If insects or ants eat it, the child becomes scaphulous. If crows or magpies swallow it, the child will have an abrupt or violent death. If it is cast into the fire, the child incurs running sores. The Japanese preserve the navel string most carefully and bury it with the dead in the grave. Contagious magic of placenta and navel string in Africa, especially among the Baganda. Among the galas of East Africa, the navel string is carefully kept, sewn up in leather, and serves as an amulet for female camels, which then become the child's property, together with all the young they give birth to. The Baganda believe that every person is born with a double and this double they identify with the afterbirth, which they regard as a second child. Further, they think that the afterbirth has a ghost, and that the ghost is in that portion of the navel string which remains attached to the child after birth. This ghost must be preserved if the child is to be healthy. Hence, when the navel string drops off, it is rubbed with butter, swathed in bark cloth, and kept through life under the name of the twin, Malongo. The afterbirth is wrapped up in plantain leaves, and buried by the child's mother at the root of a plantain tree, where it is protected against wild beasts. If the child be a boy, the tree chosen of the kind whose fruit is made into beer. If the child be a girl, the tree of the kind whose fruit is eaten. The plantain tree at whose root the afterbirth is buried becomes sacred until the fruit has ripened and been used. Only the father's mother may come near it and dig about it. All other people are kept from it by a rope of plantation fibre, which is tied from tree to tree in a circle round about the sacred plantain. All the child's secretions are thrown by the mother at the root of the tree. When the fruit is ripe, the father's mother cuts it and makes it into beer or cooks it according to the sex of the child. And the relatives of the father's clan then come and partake of the sacred feast. After the meal, the father must go in to his own wife. For should he neglect to do so, and should some other member of the clan have sexual relations with his wife first, the child's spirit would leave it 
and going to the other woman. Contagious magic of the navel string among the vagenda. Further, the navel string plays a part at the ceremony of naming a child, the object of which being among the vagenda is to determine whether the child is legitimate or not. For this purpose, the navel string, the so-called twin, is dropped into a bowl containing a mixture of beer, milk and water. If it floats, the child is legitimate, and the clan accepts it as a member. If it sinks, the child is disowned by the clan, and the mother is punished for adultery. Afterwards, the navel string, or twin, malongo, is either kept by the clan or buried along with the afterbirth at the root of the plantain tree. Such are the customs observed with regard to the afterbirth and navel string of Paganda commoners. The king's navel string, or twin, wrapped in bark cloths and decorated with beads, is treated like a person and confided to the care of the Kimbugwe, the second officer of the country, who has a special house built for it within his enclosure. Every month, when the new moon first appears in the sky, the Kimbugwe carries the bundle containing the twin in procession with fife and drums playing to the king, while the royal drum is beating in the royal enclosure. The king examines it and hands it back to him. After that, the minister returns the precious bundle to its own house in his enclosure and places it in the doorway where it remains all night. Next morning it is taken from its wrappings, smeared with butter, and again set in the doorway until the evening, when it is swathed once more in its bark clothes and restored to its proper resting place. After the king's death, his twin is deposited, along with his jawbone, in the huge hut which forms his temple. The spirit of the dead king is supposed to dwell in these two relics. They are placed on the dais when he wishes to hold his court, and when he is oracularly consulted on special occasions. Contagious magic of navel string and afterbirth in America. The Incas of Peru preserved the navel string with the greatest care and gave it to the child to suck whenever it fell ill. In ancient Mexico, they used to give a boy's navel string to soldiers to be buried by them on a field of battle, in order that the boy might thus acquire a passion for war. But the navel string of a girl was buried beside the domestic hearth, because this was believed to inspire her with a love of home and a taste for cooking and baking. Algonquin women hung the navel string round the child's neck. If he lost it, they thought the child would be stupid and spiritless. Among the Thompson Indians of British Columbia, the navel string was sewn up by the mother in a piece of buckskin embroidered with hair, quills and beads. It was then tied to the broad buckskin band, which extended round the head of the cradle on the outside. Many thongs hung from it, each carrying fawns, hoofs, and beads that jingled when the cradle was moved. If the navel string were lost, they looked on it as a calamity, for they believed that in after years the child would become foolish or would be lost in the chase or on a journey. Among the Kwakutl Indians of British Columbia, the afterbirth of girls is buried at high water mark, in the belief that this will render them expert at digging for clam. The afterbirth of boys is sometimes exposed at places where ravens will eat it, because the boys will thus acquire the raven's prophetic vision. The same Indians are persuaded that the navel string may be the means of imparting a variety of accomplishments to its original owner. Thus, if it were fastened to a dancing mask, which is then worn by a skilful dancer, the child would dance well. If it is attached to a knife, which is thereafter used by a cunning carver, the child will carve well. Again, if the parents wish their son to sing beautifully, they tie his navel string to the baton of a singing master. Then the boy calls on the singing master every morning, while the artist is eating his breakfast. The votary of the muses thereupon takes his baton and moves it twice down the right side and twice down the left side of the boy's body, after which he gives the lad some of his food to eat. That as an infallible way of making the boy a beautiful singer. 
Among the Cherokees, the navel string of an infant girl is buried under the corn mortar, in order that the girl may grow up to be a good baker. By the navel string of a boy is hung up on a tree in the woods, in order that he may be a hunter. Among the Kiowas, the navel string of a girl is sewn up in a small beaded pouch, and worn by her at her belt as she grows to womanhood. If the girl's mother ever sells a belt and pouch, she is careful to extract the navel string from the pouch before the bargain is struck. Should the child die, the pouch containing a navel string would be fastened to a stick and set up over her grave. Contagious Magic of Navel String in Afterbirth in Europe Even in Europe, many people still believe that a person's destiny is more or less bound up with that of his navel string or afterbirth. Thus in Rhenish Bavaria, the navel string is kept for a while wrapped up in a base full linen and then cut or pricked to pieces according as the child is a boy or a girl, in order that he or she may grow up to be a skilful workman or a good sempstress. In Berlin, the midwife commonly delivers the dried navel string to the father with a strict injunction to preserve it carefully, for so long as it is kept, the children will live and thrive and be free from sickness. In Bios and Perche, the people are careful to throw the navel string neither into water nor into fire, believing that, if that were done, the child would be drowned or burned. Among the Ruthenians of Bukowina and Galicia, the owner of a cow sometimes endeavours to increase its milk by throwing its afterbirth into a spring, in order that, just as the water flows from the spring, so milk may flow in abundance from the udders of the cow. Some German peasants think that the afterbirth of the cow must be hung up in an apple tree, otherwise the cow would not have a calf next year. Similarly, at Cleveland in Yorkshire, when a mare falls, it is a custom to hang up the placenta in a tree, particularly in a thorn tree, in order to secure luck with the foal. Should the birth take place in the fields, this suspension is most carefully attended to, while, as for the requirements of such events at the homestead, in not a few instances, there is a certain tree not far from the farm building still specially marked out for the reception of those peculiar pendants. In one instance lately, I heard of a large tree, so devoted, but admittedly in default of the thorn, the old thorn tree long employed for the purpose having died out. Again in Europe, children born with a call are considered lucky. In Holland, as in the East Indies, they can see ghosts. The Icelanders also hold that child born with a call will afterwards possess gifts of second sight, that he will never be harmed for by sorcery, and will be victorious in every contest he undertakes, provided he has the call dried and carries it with him. This latter belief explains why both in ancient and modern times, advocates have bought calls with the hope of winning their cases by means of them. Probably they thought that the spirit in the call would prove an invincible ally to the person who had purchased its services. In like manner, the Aborigines of Central Australia believe that their sacred sticks or stones, Charingra, are intimately associated with the spirits of the dead men to whom they belonged, and that in a fight a man who carries one of these sticks or stones will certainly vanquish an adversary who has no such talisman. Child's Guardian Spirit Associated with the Chorian Further, it is an ancient belief in Iceland that a child's guardian spirit, or a part of its soul, has its seat in the Chorian or fetal membrane which usually forms part of the afterbirth, but is known as a call when the child happens to be born with it. Hence the Jorian was itself known as the Filgia, or guardian spirit. It might not be thrown away under the open sky, lest demons should get hold of it and work the child harm thereby, or lest wild beasts should eat it up. It might not be burned, for if it were burned, the child would have no Filgia, which would be as bad as to have no shadow. Formerly, it was customary to bury the Jorian under the threshold, where the mother stepped over it daily when she rose from bed. If the Chorian was thus treated, the man had, in afterlife, a guardian spirit in the shape of a bear, an eagle, a wolf, an ox, or a boar. The guardian spirits of cunning men and wizards have the shape of a fox, 
while those of beautiful women appeared as swans. In all these forms, the guardian spirits formally announced their coming and presented themselves to the persons to whom they belonged, and nowadays both the belief and the custom have changed in many respects. After birth or navel string, a seat of the external soul. Thus, in many parts of the world, the navel string, or more commonly the afterbirth, is regarded as a living being, the brother or sister of the infant, or as the material object in which the guardian spirit of the child or part of its soul resides. This latter belief we have found among the Aborigines of Queensland, the Batas of Sumatra, and the Norsemen of Iceland. In accordance with such beliefs, it has been customary to preserve these parts of the body, at least for a time, with the utmost care, lest the character, the fate, or even the life of the person to whom they belong should be endangered by their injury or loss. Further, the sympathetic connection supposed to exist between a person and his afterbirth or navel string comes out very clearly in the widespread custom of treating the afterbirth or navel string in ways which are supposed to influence for life the character and career of the person, making him, if it is a man, a swift runner, a nimble climber, a strong swimmer, a skillful hunter, or a brave soldier, and making her, if it is a woman, an expert fisher, a cunning sempstress, a good cook or baker, and so forth. Thus the beliefs and usages concerned with the afterbirth or placenta, and to a less extent with the navel string, present a remarkable parallel to the widespread doctrine of the transferable or external soul and the customs found on it. Hence, it is hardly rash to conjecture that the resemblance is no mere chance coincidence, but that in the afterbirth or placenta we have a physical basis, not necessarily the only one, for the theory and practice of the external soul. The consideration of that subject is reserved for a later part of this work. Contagious magic exemplified in the sympathetic connection supposed to exist between a wound and the weapon. A curious application of the doctrine of contagious magic is the relation commonly believed to exist between a wounded man and the agent of the wound, so that whatever is subsequently done by or to the agent must correspondingly affect the patient either for good or evil. Thus Pliny tells us that if you have wounded a man and are sorry for it, you have only to spit on the hand that gave the wound, and the pain of the sufferer will be instantly alleviated. In Melanesia, if a man's friends get possession of the arrow which wounded him, they keep it in a damp place or in cool leaves, for then the inflammation will be trifling and will soon subside. Meantime, the enemy who shot the arrow is hard at work to aggravate the wound by all the means in his power. For this purpose, he and his friends drink hot and burning juices and chew irritating leaves, for this will clearly inflame and irritate the wound. Further, they keep the bow near the fire to make the wound which it has inflicted hot, and for the same reason they put the arrowhead, if it has been recovered, into the fire. Moreover, they are careful to keep the bowstring taut and to twang it occasionally, for this will cause a wounded man to suffer from tension of the nerves and spasms of tetanus. Similarly, when a Kwakutsuril Indian of British Columbia had bitten a piece out of an enemy's arm, he used to drink hot water afterwards for the purpose of thereby inflaming the wound in his foe's body. Among the Lakunjan Indians of the same region is a rule that an arrow or any other weapon that has wounded a man must be hidden by his friends, who have to be careful not to bring it near the fire till the wound is healed. If a knife or an arrow which is still covered with a man's blood were thrown into the fire, wounded man would suffer very much. In the Yerkla mining tribe of southeastern Australia, it is thought that if any one but the medicine man touches the flint knife with which a boy has been circumcised, 
the boy will thereby be made very ill. So seriously is the belief that if the lad chanced thereafter to fall sick and die, the man who has touched the knife would be killed. Bacon on the custom of anointing the weapon in order to heal the wound. It is constantly received and avouched, says Bacon, that the anointing of a weapon that maketh the wound will heal the wound itself. In this experiment, upon the relation of men of credit, though myself as yet am not fully inclined to believe it, you shall note the points following. First, the ointment wherewith this is done is made of diverse ingredients, whereof the strangest and hardest to come by are the moss upon the skull of a dead man unburied, and the fats of a boar, and the bear killed in the act of generation. The precious ointment compounded out of these and other ingredients was applied, as the philosopher explains, not to the wound but to the weapon, and even though the injured man was at a great distance and knew nothing about it. The experiment, he tells us, had been tried of wiping the ointment off the weapon without the knowledge of the person hurt, with the result that he was presently in a great rage of pain until the weapon was anointed again. Moreover, it is affirmed that if you cannot get the weapon, yet if you put an instrument of iron or wood resembling the weapon into the wound, whereby it bleedeth, the anointing of that instrument will serve to work the effect. Remedies of the sort which Bacon deemed worthy of his attention are still in vogue in the eastern counties of England. East Anglican practice of anointing the weapon instead of the wound. Thus in Suffolk, if a man cuts himself with a bill hook or a scythe, he always takes care to keep the weapon bright and oils it to prevent the wound from festering. If he runs a thorn, or as he calls it, a bush into his hand, he oils or greases the extracted thorn. A man come to a doctor with an inflamed hand having run a thorn into it while he was hedging. On being told that the hand was festering, he remarked, that didn't ought to, for I greased the bush well after I pulled it out. If a horse wounds his foot by treading on a nail, a Suffolk groom will invariably preserve the nail, clean it, and grease it every day to prevent the foot from festering. Arguing in the same way, a Suffolk woman whose sister had burned her face with a flat iron observed that the face would never heal till the iron had been put out of the way, and even if it did heal, it would be sure to break out again every time the iron was heated. In Norwich in June 1902, a woman named Matilda Henry accidentally ran a nail into her foot. Without examining the wound, or even removing her stocking, she caused her daughter to grease the nail, saying that if this were done, no harm would come of the hurt. A few days afterwards, she died of locked jaw. Similarly, Cambridgeshire labourers think that if a horse has run a nail into its foot, it is necessary to grease a nail with lard or oil and put it away in some safe place where the horse will not recover. A few years ago, a veterinary surgeon was sent for to attend a horse which had ripped its side open on the hinge of a farm gatepost. On arriving at the farm, he found that nothing had been done to the wounded horse, but that a man was busy trying to pry the hinge out of the gatepost in order that it might be greased and put away, which in the opinion of the Cambridge Wiseacres would condense to the recovery of the animal. Anointing the weapon instead of the wound Similarly, Essex rustics opine that if a man has been stabbed with a knife, it is essential to his recovery that the knife should be greased and laid across the bed on which the sufferer is lying. So in Bavaria, you are directed to anoint lining, rag with grease, and tie it on the edge of the axe that cut you, taking care to keep the sharp edge upwards. As the grease on the axe dries, your wound heals. Similarly, in the Harz Mountains, they say that if you cut yourself, you ought to smear the knife or the scissors with fat and put the instrument away in a dry place in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. As the knife dries, the wound heals, 
Other people, however, in Germany, say that if you should stick the knife in some damp place in the ground, and that your hurt will heal as the knife rusts. Others again in Bavaria recommend you to smear the axe or whatever it is with blood and put it under the eaves. Further extensions of this case of contagious magic. The train of reasoning which thus commends itself to English and German rustics, in common with the savages of Melanesia and America, is carried a step further by the Aborigines of Central Australia, who conceive that under certain circumstances the near relations of a wounded man must grease themselves, restrict their diet, and regulate their behaviour in other ways in order to ensure his recovery. Thus, when a lad has been circumcised, and the wound is not yet healed, his mother may not eat a possum, or a certain kind of lizard, or carpet snake, or any kind of fat, for otherwise she would retard the healing of the boy's wound. Every day she greases her digging sticks and never lets them out of her sight. At night she sleeps with them close to her head. No one is allowed to touch them. Every day, also, she rubs her body all over with grease, as in some way this is believed to help her son's recovery. Another refinement of the same principle is due to the ingenuity of the German peasant. It is said that when one of his pigs or sheep breaks its leg, a farmer of Rhenish Bavaria or Hintz will bind up the leg of a chair with bandages and splints in due form. For some days thereafter, no one may sit on that chair, move it or knock up against it. For to do so, would pain the injured pig or sheep and hinder the cure. In this last case, it is clear that we have passed wholly out of the region of contagious magic and into the region of homeopathic or imitative magic. The chair leg, which is treated instead of the beast's leg, in no sense belongs to the animal, and the application of bandages to it is a mere stimulation of the treatment which a more rational surgery would bestow on the real patient. Sympathetic connection between a wounded person and his built blood. The sympathetic connection supposed to exist between a man and the weapon which has wounded him is probably founded on the notion that the blood on the weapon continues to feel with the blood in his body. For a like reason, the Papuans of Tunmio, an island of German New Guinea, are careful to throw into the sea the bloody bandages with which their wounds have been dressed, for they fear that if these rags fell into the hands of an enemy, he might injure them magically thereby. Once when a man with a wound in his mouth, which bled constantly, came to the missionaries to be treated, his faithful wife took great pains to collect all the blood and cast it into the sea. A sympathetic connection is supposed to exist between a person and his clothes, so that any injury done to the clothes is felt by the man. Strange and unnatural to this idea may seem to us, it is perhaps less so than the belief that magic sympathy is maintained between a person and his clothes, so that whatever is done to the clothes will be felt by the man himself, even though he may be far away at the time. That is why these same Papuans of Tolmeo search most anxiously for the smallest scrap which they may have lost of their scanty garments, and why other Papuans, travelling through the thick forest, will stop and carefully scrape from a bough any clot of red pomade which may have adhered to it from their greasy heads. Contagious Magic of Clothes In the Wat Jobaluk tribe of Victoria, a wizard would sometimes get hold of a man's opossum rug and tie it up with some small spindle-shaped pieces of casarina wood on which he had made certain marks, such as likeness of his victims and of a poisonous snake. This bundle he would then roast slowly in the fire, and as he did so, the man who had owned the opossum rug would fall sick. Should the patient suspect what was happening, he would send to the wizard and beg him to let him have the rug back. If the wizard consented, he would give the thing back, telling the sick man's friends to put it in water so as to wash the fire out. In such cases, we are told, the sick man would feel cooled and would most likely recover. In Tanner, one of the new Hebrides, 
A man who had a grudge at another and desired his death would try to get possession of a cloth which had touched the sweat of his enemy's body. If he succeeded, he rubbed the cloth carefully over the leaves and twigs of a certain tree, rolled and bound cloth, twigs and leaves into a long, sausage-shaped bundle, and burned it slowly in the fire. As the bundle was consumed, the victim fell ill, and when it was reduced to ashes, he died. In this last form of enchantment, however, the magical sympathy may be supposed to exist not so much between the man and the cloth as between the man and the sweat which issued from his body. But in other cases of the same sort, it seems that the garment by itself is enough to give the sorcerer a hold upon his victim. The witch in Theocritus, while she melted an image or lump of wax in order that her faithless lover might melt with love of her, did not forget to throw into the fire a shed of his cloak which he had dropped in her house. Prussian custom of beating the garments which a thief has dropped. In Prussia they say that if you cannot catch a thief, the next best thing you can do is to get hold of a garment which he may have shed in his flight, for if you beat it soundly, the thief will fall sick. This belief is firmly rooted in the popular mind. Some seventy or eighty years ago, in the neighbourhood of Berend, a man was detected trying to steal honey, and fled, leaving his coat behind him. When he heard that the enraged owner of the honey was mauling his lost coat, he was so alarmed that he took to his bed and died. But in Germany it is not every stick that is good enough to beat an absent man with. It should be a hazel rod cut before sunrise on Good Friday. Some say it should be a one-year-old hazel sapling, and that you should cut it with three strokes, looking to the east, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Others think the best time for cutting the rod is at the new moon on a Tuesday morning before sunrise. Once you have got this valuable instrument, you have only to spread a garment on a molehill, or on the threshold, and to lay on with hearty goodwill, mentioning the name of the person whom you desire to injure. Though he may be miles off, he will feel every whack as if it descended on his body. Contagious magic may be wrought on a man through the impressions left by his body in sand or earth, particularly through his footprints. Again, magic may be wrought on a man sympathetically, not only through his clothes and severed parts of himself, but also through the impressions left by his body in sand or earth. In particular, it is a worldwide superstition that by injuring footprints you injure the feet that made them. Thus, the natives of southeastern Australia think that they can lame a man by placing sharp pieces of quartz, glass, bone, or charcoal in his footprints. Rheumatic pains are often attributed by them to this cause. Seeing it, Tatungalong man very lame. Mr. Howard asked him what was the matter. He said, Some fellow has put bottle in my foot. He was suffering from rheumatism, but believed that an enemy had found his foot track and had buried in it a piece of broken bottle, the magical influence of which had entered his foot. Contagious Magic of Footprints On another occasion, Mr. Howard's party was forced by a number of strange natives who looked with great interest at the footprints of the horses and camels. A black fellow with Mr. Howard was much alarmed and declared that the strangers were putting poison in his footsteps. The Wingori, a tribe on the border of Western Australia, have a magical instrument made of resin and rat's teeth, which they called a sun, because it is supposed to contain the solar heat. By pasting it on a man's tracks, they think they can throw him into a violent fever, which will soon burn him up. In the Unmatsdera tribe of Central Australia, when a boy has been circumcised, he must hide in the bush, and if he should see a woman's tracks, he must be very careful to jump over them. For if his foot were to touch them, the spirit of the louse which lives in the woman's hair would go to him, and his head would be full of lice. In New Britain, it is thought that you can cause the sickness or death of a man by pricking his footprints with the sting of a stingray. The Maoris imagine that they can work grievous harm to an enemy by taking up earth from his footprints, depositing it in a sacred place, and performing a ceremony over it. 
in savage island a common form of witchcraft was to take up the soil on which an enemy had set his foot and to carry it to a sacred place where it is solemnly cursed in order that the sun might be afflicted with lameness the galeries think that if anybody sticks something sharper into your footprints while you are walking you will be wounded in your feet in japan if a house has been walked by night and the burglar's footprints are visible in the morning the householder will burn mugwort on them hoping thereby to hurt the robber's feet so that he cannot run far and the police may easily overtake him among the karens of burma some people are said to keep poison fangs for the purpose of killing their enemies these they thrust at the footprints of the person whom they wish to destroy and soon he finds himself with a sore foot as if a dog had bitten it the sore rapidly grows worse till death follows peasants of northern india commonly attribute all sorts of pains and sores to the machinations of a witch or sorcerer who has meddled with their footprints for example with the chero a dravidian race of labourers in the hill country of mirzabur a favourite mode of harming an enemy is to measure his footprints in the dust with a straw and then mutter a spell over them that brings on wounds and sores in his feet such magical operations have been familiar to the hindus from of old in the kosika sutra a book of sorcery it is directed that while your foe is walking southward you should make cuts in his footprints with the leaf of a certain tree or with the blade of an axe it is not quite clear which is to be used then you must tie dust from the footprint in the leaf of a certain tree butia frendosa and throw it into a frying pan if it crackles in the pan your enemy is undone another old hindu charm was to obtain earth from the footprint of a beleaguered king and scattered in the wind the herero of south africa take earth from the footprints of a lion and throw it on the track of an enemy with the wish may the lion kill you the ovamambo of the same region believe that they can be bewitched by enemy through the dust or sand of their footprints hence a man who has special reason to dread the spite of a foe will carefully efface his footprints with the branches fast as he makes them the you speaking people of west africa fancy they can drive an enemy mad by throwing a magic powder on his footprints among the shuswap and the carrier indians of northwest america shamans used to bewitch a man by taking earth from the spot on which he had stood and placing it in their medicine bags then their victim fell sick or died in north africa the magic of the footprints is sometimes used for more amiable purposes a woman who wishes to attach her husband or lover to herself will take earth from the print of his right foot tie it up with some of the hairs in a packet and wear the packet next her skin contagious magic of footprints in europe similar practices prevail in various parts of europe thus in mecklenburg it is thought that if you drive a nail into a man's footprint he will fall lame sometimes it is required that the nail should be taken from a coffin a like mode of injuring an enemy is restored to in some parts of france it is said that there was an old woman who used to frequent stow in suffolk and she was a witch if while she walked any one went after her and stuck a nail or a knife into a footprint in the dust the dame could not stir a step till it was withdrawn more commonly it would seem in germany earth from the footprint is tied up in a cloth and hung in the chimney smoke as it dries up so the man withers away or his foot shrivels up the same practice and the same belief are said to be common in mato grosso a province of brazil a bohemian variation of the charm is to put the earth from the footprint in a pot with nails needles broken glass and so forth then set the pot on the fire and let it boil till it bursts after that the man whose footprint has been boiled will have a lame leg for the rest of his life among the lithuanians the proceeding is somewhat different 
They dig up the earth from the person's footprint and bury it, with various incantations, in a graveyard. That causes the person to sicken and die. A similar practice is reported from Mecklenburg. The Estonians of the island of OSL measure the footprint with a stick and bury the stick, thereby undermining the health of the man or woman whose foot made the mark. Among the South Slavs, a girl will dig up the earth from the footprints of the man she loves and put it in a flower pot. Then she plants in the pot a marigold, a flower that is thought to be fadeless, and as its golden blossom grows and blooms and never fades, so shall her sweetheart's love grow and bloom and never, never fade. Thus the love spell acts on the man through the earth he trod on. An old Danish mode of concluding a treaty was based on the same idea of the sympathetic connection between a man and his footprints. The confidenting parties sprinkled each other's footprints with their own blood, thus giving a pledge of fidelity. In ancient Greece, superstitions of the same sort seem to have been current, for it was thought that if a horse stepped on the track of a wolf, he was seized with dumbness, and a maxim ascribed to Pythagoras forbade people to pierce a man's footprint with a nail or a knife. The contagious magic of footprints is used by hunters for the purpose of running down the game. The same superstition is turned to account by hunters in many parts of the world for the purpose of running down the game. Thus a German huntsman will stick a nail taken from a coffin into the first spore of the quarry, believing that this will hinder the animal from escaping. The Aborigines of Victoria put hot embers in the tracks of the animals they were pursuing. Hot and tot hunters throw into the air a handful of sand taken from the footprints of the game believing that this will bring the animal down. Thompson Indians used to lay charms on the tracks of wounded deer. After that, they deemed it superfluous to pursue the animal any further that day, for being thus charmed, it could not travel far and would soon die. Similarly, Ojibwe Indians placed medicine on the track of the first deer or bear they meet with, supposing that this would soon bring the animal into sight, even if it were two or three days' journey off, for this charm had power to compress a journey of several days into a few hours. Ewa hunters of West Africa stab the footprints of game with a sharp-pointed stick in order to maim the quarry and allow them to come up with it. If Estonian peasants find a wolf stung on a beast's tracks, they burn it and scatter the ashes to the wind. This gives the wolf a pain in his stomach and makes him lose his way. The Aino think that hares bewitch people, hence if one of them sees a track of a hare in the snow near his hut, he should carefully scoop it up with a water ladle and then turn it upside down, saying as he does so that he buries the soul of the hare under the snow, and expressing a wish that the animal may sicken and die. In order to recover strayed cattle, the Zulus take the animal's dung and earth from their footprints and place both in the chief's vessel, round which a magic circle is drawn. Then the chief says, I have now conquered them. Those cattle are now here. I am now sitting upon them. I do not know what way they will escape. Contagious magic wrought through the impressions of other parts of the body. But though the footprint is most obvious, it is not the only impression made by the body through which magic may be wrought on a man. The Aborigines of southeastern Australia believe that a man may be injured by burying sharp fragments of quartz, glass, and so forth in the marks made by his reclining body. The magical virtue of these sharp things enters his body and causes those acute pains which the ignorant European puts down to rheumatism. Sometimes they beat the place where the man sat with a pointed stick of the he-oak, Cosarina Leptoclara, chanting an appropriate song at the same time. The stick will enter his person and kill him, provided the place operated on is still warm with the heat of his body. At Delana, in British New Guinea, a man will sometimes revenge himself on a girl who has rejected his love by thrusting the spine of a stingray into the spot where she has been sitting. Afterwards, he puts it in the sun for a day or two, and finally heats it over a fire. 
in a couple of days a girl dies. The natives of Tumlio, an island of German New Guinea, efface the marks they have left on the ground where they sat, lest magic should be wrought on them thereby. Before they leave a camping place, some of the natives of German New Guinea are careful to stab the ground thoroughly with spears in order to prevent a sorcerer from making any use of a drop of sweat or any other personal remains which they may chance to leave behind. We can now understand why it was a maxim with the Pythagoreans that in rising from bed you should smooth away the impression left by your body on the bedclothes. The rule was simply an old precaution against magic, forming part of a whole code of superstitious maxims which antiquity fathered on Pythagoras, though doubtless they were familiar to the barbarous forefathers of the Greeks long before the time of that philosopher. Contagious Magic of Imprints to ensure the good behaviour of an ally, with whom they have just had a conference, the Basutos will cut and preserve the grass on which the ally sat during the interview. Probably they regard the grass as a hostage for the observance of the treaty, since though they could punish the man who sat on the grass if he should break faith, Moors who write on the sand are superstitiously careful to obliterate all the marks they made, never leaving a stroke or a dot in the sand when they have done writing. Another of the so-called maxims of Pythagoras bade people in lifting a pot always to smooth away the imprint it left on the ashes. So in Cambodia they say that when you lift a pot from the fire you should not set it down on the ashes, but that if you must do so, you should be careful in lifting the pot from the ashes to efface the impression as made. Otherwise, they think that want will knock at your door. But this seems to be an afterthought devised to explain a rule which the original meaning was forgotten. The old notion probably was that a magician could sympathetically injure any person who ate out of a pot by means of the impression which the pot had left on the ashes, or to be more explicit, contagious magic was supposed to work through the impression of the pot to the pot itself, through the pot to the meat containing in it, and finally through the meat to the eater. End of section 7